host, Steve. It's great to meet you. Thanks so much for joining us here today. You're welcome. Good to meet you too, Colin. Yeah. Um, so this is the first time we've met and I'd really love to know a little bit about your coffee story. Uh, where, right. Where'd you get started in coffee and what are you doing today? So I got started in coffee in 1996, um, actually starting working with Pete's as a, as a barista because I graduated college with a degree in um, fine arts painting and world comparative literature with an emphasis on folklore and mythology. So wow. it meant I didn't really have too many usable job skills. And so mm -hmm. coffee seemed to be a, a really good fit. Um, so from there at Pete's, it was amazing. It had 20 hours and you could get, you know, full medical, dental, chiropractor vision. Um, and I was still playing a lot of music at the time. So that was sort of the perfect job. After, yeah, a few, that's great. after a few years, it was sort of like, well, I guess I should probably get more serious about this job. So shortly thereafter, I joined the training department, moved to Los Angeles and kind of um, opened up a lot of stores, worked on training and development. Um, then started my next phase was when I started to meet Xavier as I opened up the Los Angeles roasting facility for Intelligentsia. Um, after that, kind of spent a, a bit of a time there, um, basically integrating roasting in QC and really developing a passion for roasting and green coffee and, you know, having some really great mentors to look up to. Um, from there, I moved on and did a little bit of consulting and then got a coffee buying and director of coffee job at Groundware Coffee in Los Angeles. Um, did that for a few years, left that, did more consulting, and then got a job in Korea um, working for a large F&B as their director of coffee. So then I started just moving you know, upwards of 200 containers of coffee um, at that point. Wow. Um, then the pandemic hit and I decided, you know, since I was already ex experiencing the pandemic in Korea, I thought it'd be really interesting to move back to the States and experience it there as well. Mm. So, <laughs> so we moved back here last year, um, April 15th, actually on tax day. That was really fun. Um, moving with two cats from Korea um, to Portland. So now we're in Portland. I'm doing a little bit of consulting and also working for a small importer called Odyssey Coffees based out of El Salvador. Cool. That's a, those are some, you know, really impressive, uh, you know, really impressive uh, experiences that you've had and, and like, you know, very, very wide ranging. Yeah. Moving 200 containers a year is. Yeah. There, it was interesting. I mean, again, like all of the experiences are great and, you know, there's lots to be learned from all of them. And, mm -hmm. you know, I think that's the great path about coffee is just kind of like the ability to continue to learn and develop. You're never going to know everything about anything. So, you know, right. there's, there's so many opportunities and again, you, you meet so many interesting people and there's so many people to learn from. So, you know, it's pretty amazing. I, I've been working in coffee for about 10 years and I, I actually did know everything the first year. Yeah, right. And I've, I've actually progressively <laughs> learned a lot less each year. Don't um, we all? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad the Denning-Kruger curve can still be sort of proven by the coffee industry, if nothing else. So. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. So, all right. So what, when you started working as a part-time barista, was there a, a, a single moment that you remember that, that sort of made you realize that this was going to be a longer term uh, work life decision for you? I don't know what that moment, I think that moment was a few years into it, honestly, like, you know, I was still painting a lot, 
and playing a lot of music and you know the barista job essentially um paid my bills and i'd always been kind of interested in tasting and as far as like uh, when we were in college a, a bunch of friends and i kind of started a whiskey club so we would each essentially buy whiskeys and then get them together and this is kind of like in the early 90s so you know tasting was kind of an interesting thing and once we started learning more about coffee and the sort of differences in coffee and you know, some basic knowledge, I think that became super interesting to me. And mm -hmm. it's also sort of, I think, part of my work ethic, where if you're going to do something, you might as well, you might as well be good at it. And like, just at least while you're there, you should focus on it. So, you know, even though it's just a part time barista or working or, you know, dealing with coffee beans or whatever, it was always my intention to just learn as much as I could and be as good as I possibly could at whatever task I was doing at, at the time. So, you know, there were opportunities that came up. Um, and, but I don't, I don't know when it actually really became like a full-time gig until I think maybe three years into coffee where, you know, there were opportunities to come up to help to train and open other stores. Mm -hmm. um, and then it's like, oh, I guess I can probably do this. And it probably possibly looked like, I guess I'm still here and I'm starting a 401k and the benefits mm -hmm. are really good sort of thing. So Oh, that's it's great. like it's sort of like again i think a lot of people in the 90s like getting into coffee everyone was sort of an accidental tourist like you like no one decided that they were going to work in coffee I, I don't even think no even people even realized that that was a potential to work right. in there, coffee there wasn't a good time. example of many people that had done that at that point no there's no like uc davis i can go to coffee school thing or there's no mm -hmm. you know the barista championship was not what it is today you know Back then, I think it was still sponsored by Monin, and you had to use Monin syrups as part of your signature drink, and mm -hmm. it was crazy, and it was like, it was kind of weird. So again, like the the thought of actually working a full time coffee gig that that wasn't service was also sort of like abstract because it just seemed like these mythical people that had these jobs that they had had forever, and in order to get one of those jobs, they either had to die or you had to kill them. Like it was sort of like. <laughs> One mm -hmm. or the other had to happen, yeah. but it wasn't like, oh, there's just this opportunity that comes up. It just seemed so far fetched at the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I didn't when, so, tell anybody. Uh, I, I was, I, you know, I, I know enough to not ask, but I was, <laughs> I was wondering, uh, what, at, at what point did you? So you, uh, you said you started working in uh, roasting and green coffee sourcing with Pete's. No, actually, I started working in training with Pete's. Uh, really, the roasting and green coffee sourcing came with Intelligentsia. Oh, okay. So with Pete's, I was basically doing education and opening stores, barista training, um, helping managers to get the skills to make their store successful, but also writing and helping to develop uh, course content. So that would also be about like, you know, coffee processing and some of those things. And so mm -hmm. when I got into Intelligentsia, um, that's really where the sourcing and the roasting came about. I mean, luckily enough, again, we had, I had Jeff Watts as, you know, sort of a guide to help me mm -hmm. to just be casual. It's like, Hey, I just want you to learn and figure stuff out. And then you can tell me what's going on. And you're like, great. Where do I start? And it's sort of like, here's some phone numbers. You should call these people and ask them questions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. That, oh, yeah. I guess that's a start, you know? <laughs> and, and, you know, luckily in, in Los Angeles, um, you know, we had some templates and some guides, but we also had the opportunity to be sort of a non-productive roaster for a little while. As we were getting, we are building the roastery out and we were starting to get our permits, we, we could roast coffee, but we were still 
sort of in this weird limbo phase. So we, mm -hmm. we got to experiment and do a lot of experiments and tests and um, basically learn how to roast coffee with utilizing some of the templates, some of the information I gleaned from other people by just cold calling them and saying, hey, you know, Jeff Watts, give me your number. And he said, maybe I should ask you some questions and, um, and just cupping a lot and, and going from there. And then just started writing stuff down and creating hypotheses and, you know, uh, sending coffee out to other people that we liked and respected and getting feedback and figuring out what, what was the best way to go about things. So we, mm -hmm. we were really in a, in a lucky spot when we opened that roast room. Yeah. And that's still really useful information. I think for, uh, for other people is just that, that practice of not being afraid to, to reach out to other people and ask questions is, I think it's really important. I think, I think the process it's twofold though. I think that, you know, reaching out to people and asking questions is great. Um, having resources and books is great, but, you know, to quote, actually to misquote, you know, Buddha, um, you know, never trust the written word, right? So yes, it essentially like, you know, you can read all this stuff and you can like think about your ROR and you can do all these things, but like, instead of asking other people questions, you know, hopefully you have a small enough roaster or even a sample roaster to do it, but maybe, maybe you should ask the questions, get the answers from the people. But I think it's also very important to find the answers for yourself that make, make sense to you, right? Because it's, mm -hmm. it's still so abstract when you read it in a book or you're learning or someone says like, you need like 20% development time and especially when you're starting out, it's, it's very just like, I don't know what that means, but okay, sure. Right. It's good. And then you're just settled on, like, it's supposed to be like this. It becomes dogma, but mm -hmm. it's like dogma without understanding is just exactly that. It's just dogma. It's just, it's mm -hmm. sort of useless information. So until you say like, this is great because I've tried it with a 10% development time, or I've tried it with totally extended out. And until you figure out your own preference and figure out your own voice, you're just a mimic. You're just doing what everyone else is doing. And I think it's very hard to develop your own voice. So I think, to me, I think that's the important thing or one of the great things maybe coming from like an art and music background of like, mm -hmm. there are so many opportunities to express your own opinion and your own voice within just the pure production of coffee and, you know, being a coffee buyer and being a roaster. Um, for a while, I wasn't really painting or playing music a lot. So I think roasting sort of substitute a lot of those, a lot of those things of how you delve into your craft and how you utilize that craft to express yourself. So trying Absolutely. it out for yourself is like, that's the key to me. It's just like, you know, having those questions and reading the resources is great, but if you can like, you know, just get a Ikawa or get a small sample roaster, do these tests when I was training roasters. I mean, that's essentially what I developed is like a small sort of workbook or of exercises of, roasting coffee you know i want them all the same color but i want them like nine minutes to 16 minutes out then we'll cut them all blind and figure out which one you like the best and look at the profiles and you know i think it's again it's you're discovering it for yourself and i think that's exciting and it also is more meaningful and i think it stays with you more than having to remember numbers or curves or whatever mm -hmm. yeah cropster has been a great resource uh to us for you know, helping to keep data, but yeah, if you lean on it too much, it's, you still got to be tasting and, and really, you know, looking, looking 
looking to yourself and looking to the, the people around you to see, you know, is this, you know, are, are we, are we still enjoying this? Does it need to be? Cause yeah, coffee is never a stationary thing. It's changing all the time. So right. Cropster is, Cropster is amazing. Like when, when we first started working with Cropster, so like, I don't know if you know, like, so Intelli was sort of like Cropster's only client for a while. I remember mm -hmm. that I was doing the pilot so, program. So yeah, we were, we were like the beta yeah. testers. Yeah. And like, you know, when there was no profile roast, there was no little curve that you followed. And, you know, one of the feedbacks I think a lot of us gave, definitely I gave to Cropster was I'd love to see that. And it's so interesting. My, my concept of what the profile or have that, having that there was never to replicate my roast. It was actually so I could do tests so that I can vary my roast and understand so I can have a control and I can understand what was going on from the control. But like, I was kind of short-sighted. Maybe I never saw a use for just like, I can just follow this line. I was mm -hmm. just like, maybe I can do these crazy things. Cause I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, but trying to just keep track of what I was doing from the difference, not like trying to be like, maybe I should be consistent. Like, I think, you know, as, as years go on, I acknowledge like, you know, no, I think maybe I should be a more consistent roaster. But at the time it was just like, we have this thing and it graphs and it's amazing. Mm -hmm. You know, <laughs> you're always kind of looking for like, what, el what else is in the coffee? What else can I find? Right. So, uh, what was your, what was your first origin visit? Um, really my first origin visit was in 2010 in at Guatemala. It was actually a roasters guild origin trip. And really that's one of the ways I got, um, really involved with the Roasters Guild kind of later on as well. So um, that visit was great. Again, like I, I remember just getting a phone call from, from Jeff Watts and he told me that apparently I was going to Guatemala on a Roasters Guild version. <laughs> 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 yeah. nice. So, and then one of, one of our, um, a couple of the people that we were working where, with were, um, one of them was actually a visit and another one was sort of off in way with Tenango. Um, and so I kind of split off from the group to just go visit and check up on some of our, our contacts. But um, yeah, that was amazing. It was just sort of like an all around good overview of, of going to origin and seeing what, what was going on. Was there any, uh, have your visits to, to coffee farms left you with any uh, like specific insight that you wouldn't have had had you not been again i think it's sort of like the doing it for yourself thing i think you know you can read about processing you can read about you know what it's like on a coffee farm but until you've actually like worked a coffee farm and harvested coffee you know unless you've actually gone to the dry mill and you know kind of seen that process or you know you've helped basically on the drying patios and helped during harvest season i think you don't really understand the work that it goes into it the again, it just helps to cement the context of which, you know, this product that you're buying. And I think it also personalizes it again, where you, where you bring it home. And I think that's on some ways, you know, from a marketing standpoint, and that's what origin trips are amazing for is because then people will go back to wherever they were, they're sort of reinvigorated and they sort of evangelize this concept of like, this is what's going on in the farm. And this is why we need to kind of push forward, right. With, you know, with the customers and explain, you know, why you should be paying as much for beer for your coffee because like why is it why is it totally fine to get you know stand in line for hours for like a crappy six dollar beer but a six dollar cup of coffee just seems like 
the most insulting thing on the planet when like mm -hmm. when you think about the logistics and the cost of goods and even just the transportation and you know what it takes um so so much more can go into it right and and so it's you know it's an interesting thing and part of our job i think is to ask those questions or ask our customers those questions and kind of like challenge some of those those things and again like you know from a pure business standpoint like you also have to understand what the market can bear and, and everything else and be realistic about it but it, it doesn't mean that you need to stop asking those questions or stop again challenging people's beliefs you can do it in a right. nice way you can do it in a super in your face way then then you can lose customers or you can do it in a way that just sort of again like just makes people think you know i think that the more people think people just go throughout i think our consumer world without a thought at all right you just kind of especially nowadays pandemic days even more so where you're just like it's literally a touch of a button you're just like online i want this i push a button it magically shows up like mm -hmm. there's a lot of magic in the world today for better or worse i guess yeah. you know but Mm -hmm. But like, I think with within that context, again, like you're not you're not engaging and you're not engaging in the process to ask those questions. And I think that that's something I feel like that the pandemic has has lost a little bit. I mean, granted, there, there are more articles, I think, on, you know, the goings on and other topics. But I think it's really that engagement that that's missing. Um, which mm -hmm. is strange coming from me as Xavier probably knows too, and most other people. I'm not necessarily a people person or <laughs> like I, that's why I like roasting is because and it removed me from humans but yes. I, but I still think that that again the questions need to be asked and I understand like if I want to do anything within the context of coffee that we still need to engage with people so again for me it's like dealing with people as a means to an end sometimes I like people but <laughs> yeah sometimes it, not so it's 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 yeah. hard <laughs> yeah, dealing with people can be draining. That was I, I started looking to roast to get out of the the coffee bar service industry environment as well. Right. Um, and I think part of part of the thought process behind this, uh, you know, behind the Source Code magazine, and then more so behind this this podcast that we're doing, is that so many of the personalities of the people that end up doing this work. Uh, those personalities are a bit more, uh, you know, introverted, uh, introverted. introverted. That's what yeah. I was trying to say. Yes. And, uh, <laughs> reclusive. Yeah. Reclusive, Hermit like, yes. um, and so, but, but at the same time, so much of this information I think is, is so important to, you know, furthering the cause of a more sustainable coffee industry, uh, for the producers. Right. Um, right again like and, knowledge is power and it, for me it's like you know when Xavier talks to me about this it, it's like you know I don't know what I have as far as knowledge there is to spread per se but if like you know there's something that helps someone to figure something out I'm I'm more than happy to to help you know that's that's always mm -hmm. been my thing too because I think knowledge is power and if some of my experiences can help people to you know figure out what not to do or maybe even what to do which is less likely but possible then then good like you know i would like to you know make a difference or help out in any way sure I, so i like i'd like to add something actually before i forget because i feel like I, I could really 
we could really miss a, a great opportunity to discuss something Steve had told me about uh, previous or on our phone call prior to uh, the, the interview is that um, Steve, you told me um, that in, in your current role, you ha you'll have certain coffees that you won't even uh, entertain selling to the U.S. market because you know that the value that roasters in, in the United States place over certain coffees is, uh, is not like other customers, uh, for example, in, in, in South Korea. So I, I'd, I'd love if you could maybe kind of walk us through some of what you had shared with me. And, and because I think it's really valuable to share that, that perspective, because when, when you shared it with me, it made a lot of sense that you, you know, you, you wouldn't take the, the, these certain coffees to a market that wouldn't appreciate them. Right. Well, sorry about that. It's not, not that they won't appreciate them. I think it's what, well, maybe appreciation comes in different forms. I think it's yeah, like yeah. what people will pay for. And yes. I think what it really is and what we talked about was like the, the value of coffee and how we're seeing, you know, the United States is being a large coffee consumer is not necessarily the ones to pay the highest prices. Not, I mean, not to say that they're not paying good prices, but you know, as, as far as like, you know, geishas or like, you know, experimental coffees, you know, some of them they're paying pretty good prices, but again, in places like Australia and Asia, they're paying much, much better prices. So again, like something that, Maybe you can sell in, you know, Japan or Australia and you offer it to them and there's no haggling. They're, they're happy to pay, you know, $10, $15 a pound for a coffee. Um, if you can get six for that in the States, you're, you're lucky. Yeah. And so again, that also changes your price that, you know, as an importer and, you know, I happen to be import export so I can kind of negotiate on both ends, but then that also changes your, your price on, you know, what you're going to be in turn paying the mill or the farmers. Right. So, you know, basically the model that I'm working with, I try to make it where we're just making a margin, like a pretty transparent, this is what my margin is. And so like the more that they pay me, the, the more that the end customer pays me, the more I can give back to the farm. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, like, you know, I was telling Xavier before, it's like, I would rather offer these coffees at full price to the people that I know that will pay full price. And then, you know, ideally, and we have customers in the States that again, like they're long-term customers with this um, import business. So we will offer it because they're repeat customers, we'll offer it to them as well. But as far as like kind of new clients or new offerings or whatever, it's like, it's very difficult to, you know, want to reserve coffees for them when you know that it's going to essentially be discounted yeah, and that's, that's sort of the case i mean that's a pretty blanket thing i think with most importers if they're doing international business it's like you know many other countries they also you know pay a lot more for coffee as far as beverages or you know what that culture is i mean it's it's not like you know the price for a coffee if you get a coffee and you know, one of those nice coffees in Japan is going to be $2 or $3 or whatever either, you know, but, but people, there's a market for it. People are willing to pay for it. People acknowledge what it took to get that coffee. They acknowledge the specialness of the coffee and they're also willing to pay for that and not, and, and there's no like weird customer service backlash of like, why am I paying $6 and I need a breakdown and I need a transparency report 
and I need like all these special things and it's certifications. And I also would like the, the news article that detailed, you know, why this is an award-winning coffee in order to pay $6 for this cup of coffee. Like they don't need like the provenance. It's just like, this is a special coffee. We said it was a special coffee. You know, there's this sort of trust in the relationship with consumer and business and they believe that you're going to be, you know, treating them fairly. What's your perspective on, on why that is like, what, what culturally is, uh, is different that allows for a market that doesn't question the price as much, uh, free refills and the concept of coffee as a lost leader within the restaurant industry is I think a really, really big thing. So again, if you're used to getting something for like a dollar or free, I mean, when I worked in bars, you know, my other weird part-time job was, you know, as a doorman slash bouncer, which was fun, but when you worked in bars, right, like then it was like your coffee bag was like, you know, guaranteed less than, you know, one cent per cup type of coffee, mm-hmm. you know, your customers. Mm-hmm. And that's why, you know, specialty is interesting, like different has to be different. I think that's why sometimes like these new, you know, um, carbonic maceration processes that is just like coffee that doesn't taste like coffee is great on some levels as a gateway because it it helps to um define or it helps to really set out like this coffee is not like the stuff that i get at the restaurant or the stuff so you know it's a really good gateway into an exploration and a deep dive into you know how can i learn more about this um but you know i really do think it's like the way that coffee has been marketed the way that it's been positioned um it's just kind of a detriment to, you know, moving anything forward just because of like, again, free refills and a lot of restaurants, they don't make, they don't want to make money on coffee. They want to make money on, you know, pastries or something else, but it's not, isn't your, you know, as you work in the restaurant industry too, like booze is really the business that you're in. You're in the booze business. You're not in the food Mm -hmm. business. It's like, if I can sell more booze, then I can continue to make my restaurant happy, but you know, and then yeah, coffee is just seen really as this far down there. <laughs> necessary commodity still to a lot of people, even in specialty wine and specialty food environments, it's still kind of seen as a just a cheap drug to keep you going. Right. Like, you know, I have these desserts. I in my restaurant, I traditionally traditionally people want coffee with it. I guess I need to carry a coffee. And then even like I remember way back in the day, like watching, you know, videos of like you know, back when they had like cooking with the CIA or whatever, um, which is the Culinary Institute of America, not the, mm-hmm. the government. <laughs> that would that would also be very interesting. But yeah, that sounds great, actually. That, yeah, um, yeah. Um, Netflix. Um, but you know, their coffee program. I remember watching some of those videos, and you're like, you know, as a coffee professional, you're sort of horrified, <laughs> like mm-hmm. what they're learning. Like this is like a top-notch cooking school. This is, you know, you pay a lot of money to get in and their two days worth of coffee learning is just horrifying for someone that actually knows anything about coffee. And yeah, so you, you can only imagine it's like, of course, when you get into your restaurant, you're, you know, going through and you're doing this, like, if this is what you've learned, like, why do you want to change anything? And you see this as an extra cost, you know, when I can just continue getting, you know, whatever. I was used to it, whatever other restaurant I had done before. And when mm-hmm. cost of goods is such a, a major factor, right? When you're doing your budgets and you're doing everything else. So, 
you know, it's, it's really hard to push that envelope and it's hard for them to understand coffee as an ingredient um, and how it's different. I mean, you spend so much time on this wine list, right? And then you're just like, I mean, it's coffee. It's the, what coffee is in like the coffee that comes coffee mm-hmm. with the rest of my food. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so there really is still in your perspective, uh, you know, a lot of work to be done in the, in the U S market for, defining specialty coffee as, as something that deserves to be rewarded in a much different way. Right. I think there is, but I also think, you know, there's a dangerous thing, right. Of specialty coffee, right. Because then it's sort of like the, then there's the opening up of specialty coffee and having so much specialty coffee. Like if everything is specialty coffee, then by definition, how is it specialty coffee? Because by definition, you know, yeah be, mm-hmm. less so <laughs> you know, it's an interesting thing and you know has the coffee i think coffee overall has improved over the last at least 10 years right that we've seen coffee the the overall the baseline of coffee has risen like so we're getting mm-hmm. a lot less bad coffee i think across the board and i think that's amazing i think that even at restaurants i think the coffee is less bad than what I had traditionally Mm -hmm. gotten. Mm -hmm. Um, But every now and then, you know, you want bad coffee. Sometimes you just, it's three o'clock in the morning. You need to go to a diner to have bad coffee. Just, and I also think that you need bad coffee in order to experience good coffee, right? Because otherwise you lose your your context. Sometimes you should just have bad diner coffee. So you can go, Mm -hmm. man, this coffee that I bought was amazing because now I know. Um, Mm -hmm. But but I don't know, again, like, it's still a question of like, I don't know, it's, it's just an interesting thing within the market. Again, I think again, like that, the, the bottom has risen, but I don't know if the top's risen or again, when you're talking about consistency and I think that the top, how people are scoring or paying for the top coffee, I think, I don't know if it's risen, but it's definitely changed. And I don't know if that's better or worse, um, but it's definitely different. And I acknowledge, mm-hmm. I think that the positive thing is that you know, I talked to Xavier about this too. It's like, I think the positive thing is that we're getting more money for farmers for some coffees, right? The, the yes. thing that I'm always in fear of just because like I'm, an, I'm old and crotchety is like, but then it's like harder and harder to find just like bel- delicious, sweet, clean, juicy, like 85 point Columbia wash coffees. Mm-hmm. Like everything's like a fruit bomb or whatever. And that, and people, and why would I not, if I'm getting incentivized to pay this much money for like, again, like a yeast cocktail, carbonic maceration coffee, then I should do it as a farmer. Like I'm, I'm sort of foolish to not do that. But then Mm -hmm. what happens to these beautiful, sweet, clean coffees that I think as you know, as you've gone to the farm or if you've dealt, I mean, if you worked in coffee for 10 years as well, it's like, you know how hard that is. It's actually maybe harder to make this 86 point sweet juicy you know washed colombian than it is to like put a yeast cocktail into this and you know even if it's well done like you know getting those kind of like wild flavors and they're really interesting but it's that consistency of just clean washed coffee it's like maybe we should be paying more for those or maybe we need to incentivize people to understand and again i think that's not the farmer's fault. That's our fault as, as roasters, as, as people that sell coffee to again, like utilize these things as 
as gateway coffees and then to hopefully mm -hmm. steer them into like, you know, I'm not really a wine drinker, but like, I think, you know, a lot of people, they're foray into wine. You can get like, you know, crazy jammy, like Australian, you know, Syrahs is, and they're just like, holy crap, this is boozy and it's a fruit bomb. And this is like, this is amazing. I can taste the descriptors that they're describing. And then you get right. like super refined, like steely, more subtle, you know, lots of minerality and interesting wine, but it's not quite as in your face. And people are like, I need to grow into this. And I don't, I don't know where that is in the coffee industry yet. Like, mm -hmm. it, you know, I'm not, it's still a young industry. So I'm not sure how that's evolving or how we're even having those conversations or is it just like, you like it, like good for you. And I'm just going to keep letting you do what you do and you be you and I'll be me type of thing. I don't, mm -hmm. you know, but where does that leave the industry? If we're just so hands off about that too, I don't have the answers. It's, it, I, yeah. I, I always just have a lot of questions. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I, I think I, I enjoy wine, but I'm definitely not as educated on it. And I, I, definitely have drank a lot of beer and I was really following the craft beer world for a while. And I think it does raise some, uh, some comparisons in, uh, you know, and I think about like cheap beer and that I, you can relate that to like a diner coffee. Right. And then it's hard for somebody who's used to drinking PBR to switch to drinking a really nice, uh, Pilsner from a, a local brewery that is going to put a whole lot more money into the workers pockets right um i like your but, choice of pilsner too though because again like you know pilsners are sort of like the epitome of technology right like it's right it, there's there's nothing to hide behind with the pilsner i mean i i mm -hmm. love i love sours which is like the antithesis of a pilsner yeah <laughs> right? but like you know there's there is no room for error in a in a good pilsner and Again, sometimes, and people always just think of it as like, it's just sort of like almost too clean, like yellow beer, mm -hmm. but it's like, no, man, this is like technological advancements. And, you know, sometimes that should be rewarded. You know? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And that's, and that, and then the relation would be with some of these, uh, more process heavy coffees that really wow people. That's your sour beer or like an IPA, right. something that's like really undeniably, this is a way different product than PBR. Right. Um, but, and so, so that, you know, for me and my personal beer drinking, it was like, that stuff got me excited. And, you know, down the road, you're like, I don't want to drink a sour all the time. Sometimes I just want to drink a uh, Pilsner and right. I now know enough about beer to know I would rather support somebody, you know, putting a little more effort into it. So, and you can't no, taste nothing against PBR. Too. It's like, I love waffle house coffee as well. <laughs> exactly. There's a place and a time for everything. Um, no, I, I totally agree. Yeah. So there is a question that we've kind of been with us in the last few minutes we've been dancing around that I have been trying to ask everyone. Um, and it has to do with you know, quality and the price paid for coffee. So what are your thoughts on how should quality be tied to a living wage? Oh, that's, that's, a, that's a tough question. Again, I think that working... Working in the context that I've worked too, it's it's always interesting, right? Because when you're moving 200 containers, um, again, sometimes the purchase that you're making are it's sort of a means to an end, right? You know, like mm -hmm. I was telling Xavier too, some of the coffees that you're buying are like you know, 
that it's an amazing differential. <laughs> and, you know, you know that no one down the road is really getting rewarded for anything. However, mm -hmm. that hopefully will allow your budget and your time to really focus on what you love to do and buy those coffees. Maybe they're less volumes. Maybe you're not making 15 container contracts with those coffees, but maybe you can buy like 50 bags or a hundred bags of like, or maybe less of like these amazing coffees that you're paying like $12, $15 a pound for, because again, like you have a budget and money comes from not an infinite pool. And so you right. need to just allocate. So it's always very difficult, you know, with that question, because I was working in, you know, some of buying, you know, some more commercial coffees as well. Um, I would love to say it should tie into a living wage and that coffee quality should tie into a living wage. But I think um, there has to be a lot more education on all ends, I think, in order to be able to, for me to say that I can comfortably answer that question unequivocally. Right. I think that we need to educate the farmers and work with our farmers and farmer partners and basically broker deals with them about coffee quality and also coffee quantity if we can do it. Right. Like one of the reasons why I moved to, to Korea was because of the resources that I had and the ability to work in a way that I wanted to work where I could basically start splitting my average price with single farmers or single groups. So I could take, um, you know, I can take more of their coffee. I think it's more about paying a, a higher average price for the coffee than just mm -hmm. saying like this 82 is worth this and this 89 is worth this. But if I can say like, I'll take these 89s and I'll take these 82s and we'll agree to do this over long term. And basically what you're doing is you're kind of dealing with some financial management and creating some stability on the farm so they can actually plan and do stuff as well. I think that's, that's more important. I guess that's a roundabout way of, I don't know if that makes sense as far as like answering your question, but I think it's maybe like, if you can buy more coffees, I think that's more important. Maybe you can pay a little less for the 89s, but then mm -hmm. average it out where you're paying maybe more for the 82s and yes. that you're taking more of their coffee. So more of their coffees going somewhere. And then, you can really say that you're sponsoring a project, a farm project, and not just cherry picking, like, literally, um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. like, you know, just these amazing coffees. Because again, like, it's sort of like, also, how big's the farm? You know, there's so many factors that go into like the question you asked, how large is the farm? How much do they produce? What's exportable? What's not exportable? And then also like cost of labor, right? Like, how much would it cost them to separate out my 89 point coffee? Because if they didn't, they'd have this like 83 point coffee that they'd be getting much more than 89 in like 79. Like, you know, what's what is their just average aggregate coffee scoring at? And what's the market value of that if they didn't sort it versus the fact that they did sort it there? Yeah. You know, you, you need to make it worth their while. And sometimes like it'd be nice if they can do the math or if your importer or exporter can do all that math for you when you're working on a project. But sometimes like you have to do the math, too. And right figure out what makes the most sense for for everybody and figure out a way that everyone can do this and you know create incentivizations and you know long again i think long term planning is also a, a really great thing for farmers it is so helpful mhm mm yeah not you're not just looking at the you know the hot, the most expensive coffee that the farmer sold which yeah usually 
that's going to be such a small portion of the total production of the farm. So you're, you're saying to look at the, you have to look at the overall impact that you're making through your purchasing. And yeah, if you could offer, if 70% of the coffee they're producing is more in the 82, 83 range, and you can offer, you know, 20% more mm-hmm. for that, for that coffee, that's going to make a much larger impact than the, the couple bags of $12 a pound coffee that they make. Right. Totally. And, and, you know, again, it's, I think that's the main kind of focus. And also I think, you know, Xavier and I are familiar sort of with this direct trade model. And the other thing is, is potential, right? What is, is the potential for growth and potential for quality and then cupping the quality. Maybe, maybe you realize the coffee isn't sorted. So again, you are talking to these people about, I, I would like you to sort this stuff out and it's the potential quality, the potential for growth. And it's the potential to get those 89 point coffees. I think, you know, it's, it's so interesting as people work with direct trade and all of these other things and people are, you know, have these things. It's, it's a relationship and it's sort of this growth process. I think it's, you know, if you're doing direct trade and the first coffee you buy from them is an 87 point coffee, like, I don't know how much, I'm, I don't know how much they need your, if they were already producing 87 point coffee, like they, they probably could have find anyone to buy their coffee. It's, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that was a gift. Someone, someone gave you a gift. If you were yeah. buying like 87 point coffee from the get go, right I off love the that perspective, of the car, right? Like, you know, really, I think the model that we were always looking at was like, this, this coffee has potential and I want to get them so that they can produce 87 point coffee, not just for me, but that so they, that they have the know-how to get the market access where they really don't need me to be their only buyer, right? Like mm-hmm. that's, that's the goal, I think, to me, as far as like working the way that I work and what I want to do. Yeah. I think that definitely uh, resonates with, with the work we're doing here. Yeah. And I, I've, I've learned this perspective a lot from working with Xavier, that idea about potential looking, yeah, not, not, not expect, you can't expect realistically looking at the industry. So few farmers are without, are, are, are equipped to, uh, produce quality that are not already. So they need investment in order to, you know, some investments a, are easy, man. Like you can buy them a bricks meter for God's sakes. I mean, like, yeah. You know, mm-hmm. how hard is that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can mule yeah, it down yeah. on your next visit. It's like, it's, you know, just stick it in your carry-on. You're good to go. Most people won't look twice at it at customs, you know, just like, here you go. Like, <laughs> sure. Yeah. I love it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The need can be so great. No, I, I really, I really do appreciate that perspective about, you know, approaching. And I think a lot of newer buyers wouldn't hear that in the same way. Um, without, without hearing it so directly like that, that you need to look at the potential of what your involvement could do for a farmer, instead of looking for the farmers to approach or to already have 88 point coffees for you to, to enjoy. Right. Again, like I understand the need again, it's a small business. You want to, again, I guess that's the needs of your business and how you're going to position yourself and what story, what dialogue you want to tell, like with your business. Um, you know, it comes from a marketing perspective. I only buy 85 point coffees. We're like, well, you know, good luck with that. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, or I'm trying to do this or that or the other. Like it's, everyone's got a stance. It's not good or bad. It just is what it is. And then, you know, sometimes again, I think it, 
by taking some hard line stances, again, you end up pitching, pigeonholing yourself and you can, again, lose opportunities for potential growth or really great things or just, you know, really amazing interactions. So. I am, uh, yeah, my, I got a lot of different wheels turning on my head now. Um, <laughs> this is great, but I, so I think, uh, you know, one of the, one of the areas that we always like to, uh, I like to take advantage of a conversation with someone like you to just get a perspective for, for people who are newer to the coffee industry that are interested in, uh, being involved in green coffee sourcing in some capacity, looking at the industry as it is now, what advice would you give to somebody? Uh, how can you better yourself to, uh, you know, to be successful in this area? Um, again, depending on what avenue you're looking at with green coffee sourcing, what I, one of the things again is I cannot emphasize enough just cupping and cupping, um, everything. Like, you know, if you get a grade five Sumatra for some unknown reason, then cup that, like, don't be like, oh, it's, it's funky looking. Like, I think I saw, you know, small creature and it's still alive in my bed. <laughs> mm -hmm. Whatever, like just cup, cup the coffee. Don't judge it until you're at the cupping table. I think the other main thing to focus on is, is cup the coffee that's in front of you. Don't cup an idealized version of like, you know, that you're cupping a geisha, you know, that you're cupping, you know, this is Edito Misty Valley. Like, oh, this mm -hmm. is better. This was better in 1996 or something. I like, don't have like these weird, idealized many times I have cupped with people who are like reminiscing of like, you know, the first year Geisha came out, it was amazing. You're like, all right, but like, what about the thing that's on the table? Let's score what's on the table and, yeah. you know, be super even about that. I think the other thing about a green buyer is understanding your preferences and that quality and your preferences are totally separate things. So you are as a, so when you're scoring anyways, like, you like Sumatras, you don't like Sumatras, you like Brazils, you don't like Brazils. That has nothing to do with how you're scoring the coffee. That has nothing to do with quality. That's your preference. So you score the coffee appropriately. And then if you're the buyer, then you would assess. It's all just information. Then you would assess that information to whether or not it's a sound purchase or a not sound purchase. So I think separating mm -hmm. out your cupping versus your buying, I think are actually very important things to do. Um, and your buying would be again, depending on how large your company is or what you're doing is either I like it and I'm going to buy it or like, this is the market, this is the niche, and this is my price. And mm -hmm. this fits, this checks the boxes. So again, like it's very specific, I think, to the industry. And then again, the other thing that I would do is again, like, you know, you can say you're not based on the C market or whatever, but like be aware of the C, be aware of what the market's doing, because that's also, even if you're not, you know, if you're buying from groups or importers or whatever, that's still going to affect the price that they're paying to coffee farmers and what the coffee farmers are seeing. So you can still stay within a sort of relevant ballpark when you're making offers. The other thing is, for me, the last thing, I guess, is understanding the value of coffee, right? Like, just an overall market value, and maybe getting a perspective of like, this is how much I should be paying for an Ethiopia 84. This is how much I should be paying for an Ethiopia 86 or 87. And understanding, like, I guess from an experience level, creating a trust and a bond with the people that you're working with, both, you know, at origin and in country, um, your exporters and your importers, and 
and being honest, honest with feedback. And again, gaining that level of trust, like, you know, but the main thing I think I talked to Xavier too is, is cup everything, score everything accurately. And, you know, generally he won't be taken advantage <laughs> of. Um, mm -hmm. People, exporters know if you're not cupping their coffee. Exporters know if you're not cupping your arrivals, um, if you're not filing claims, and exporters oftentimes may want to give you copies um, that are a little bit more questionable than what's on your contract sometimes. Um, so just be very diligent about setting a, aside a very you know, detailed and thorough QC process for you know, arrivals, um, types, PSS, um, and be very clear on the feedback. You want to leave very few places to get taken advantage of in that process. Yeah. I mean, again, maybe I'm just paranoid, but mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a, I assume the paranoia comes from experience. Sometimes. Yes. Sometimes <laughs> I'm just paranoid, but in this case, yeah, I guess it's a little bit of both. So. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, Steve, thank you so much. I think uh, I think that wraps up the the majority of what we wanted to hear from you. Uh, if people have any questions for you, is, would you like to offer any uh, any good ways to get in touch? Sure. Um, you can contact me at Pocket Knife Coffee. Um, it's pocketknifecoffee.com or pocketknifecoffee at gmail.com. Great. Very good. All right. Well, uh, I am going to be thinking about this conversation for a while. And, yeah, <laughs> once again, I really appreciate it. Yeah, definitely. It's good to talk to you guys. Good to see you, Xavier. Colin, Likewise. Awesome. Thank yeah, you. Good.